if I've met you, my name is Josh. I serve as the lead pastor here. Hey, Icon, do you know I love you? Yes. Can I get a verbal confirmation? Yes. We love you too. Thank you. That means a lot. Thank you. Well, you know I love you, so let's get into our scripture reading for today. Starting in Matthew 6 and verse 19. Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. The eye is the lamp of the body. So if your eye is healthy, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light in you is darkness, how great is the darkness. No one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that as we, when we enter into the Christian faith, when we look at Jesus and put our faith in him, he invites us into a lifestyle of discipleship. We say that so often around here at Icon that we want to be disciples who follow Jesus faithfully in real life. And if that real life includes all of life, it certainly includes the topic of money. And so, Father, I, I pray that today you would give us a great reorientation in our hearts around what we prize and what we want and what we long for, both in this life and in the next. And so, Father, where there is, uh, in many of us and even in my own heart, so many ways that money and what it can get for us or what it can mean to us just has its grip on our heart. Father, I pray for a release by your spirit. I pray that your word would convict us and that we would see the beauty of Jesus and reorient, realign our priorities and our devotion back to him. God, that's a work that only you can do. I feel it and I know it today. And so I pray that you would do that. I ask that you would unite your power with my weak words and reorient our priorities today by your spirit. I ask all these things in the name of your son, Jesus. Amen. Well, uh, I did something new this week, uh, and I have regretted it all week long. I started working out again this last week, uh, and it, you know it was it was fine. It was Tuesday. Uh, I did some research Monday night around uh, what I wanted to do, and you know I kind of felt the need now that I'm 31 to get back into shape. I played baseball for 12 years, so for a while I felt like my body was my own, and now it feels like it's rebelling against me on a day by day basis. Uh, and so I, I thought, you know, I, I should probably get back in the gym. And so, but I, I didn't want to get into just a gym where I can just go work out by myself. I, I felt like I needed someone to tell me what to do. And so I, I tried this new gym uh, called F45. Anyone heard of F45? Yes. <laughs> uh, I walk into F45, excited to be told what to do. Uh, excited to get back into shape and someone helped me just kind of, you know, feel okay again. And I walk in and, uh, and, and, and little Sawyer is the coach. Uh, that's his name, Sawyer. I just call him little Sawyer in my mind. 
because um, he, he was like five, six, maybe 110 pounds. You know, the F45 coach is supposed to get me into shape. And so I, in my own pride, walk in there and I'm like, oh, okay, you know. And he asked me if I, what my history is with working out. I was like, oh, you know, I played, I played baseball for like 12 years, so I'm excited to get back into it, you know. And um, he's like, okay, okay, cool, 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 cool. Um, fast forward into that workout of 45 minutes, about minute 38, I was nowhere to be found because I was in the bathroom throwing up. Uh, it, it was horrific. Um, and I walked out and thankfully, so the, the, the gym is right by our office, like right down the street, but it's down a hill. And I knew myself well enough to drive down there and not, not walk down there. Uh, and I'm glad I did because I walked out of that gym feeling like I needed to crawl to my car. And so I, I get in my car and I, I drive back up and the rest of the week was horrific, friends. <laughs> Um, I have never been so sore in my life. Not necessarily my upper body, but mainly my lower body. Because if you can't tell, I got some chicken legs right here. You know, I got some chicken legs. And this week, uh, really up until yesterday, I was walking around like a 13-year-old trying heels on for the first time. You know, just like, you know, up the stairs, going down the stairs, a, a new fresh baby deer out of the womb, just fighting against gravity. And I looked like a fool. Um, sweet little Sawyer, he kicked my butt. <laughs> you see, I, I, I walked around and I, and I looked really silly because I had all these major muscles that I uh, couldn't really feel like I could use anymore. I had to depend on some of those smaller muscles that I never really used much and I looked silly as a consequence. And to, uh, to make a large jump from that metaphor over to money and discipleship, <laughs> that's a lot like many of us in our discipleship. That there are major muscles in discipleship to Jesus that you should be using, but you neglect and you end up looking silly as you walk your life with Christ. Let me, let me, let me explain a little bit. Let me set it up a little, a little bit. So we're, we're in a sermon, on, sermon series on the Sermon on the Mount. Uh, and Jesus, as we've talked about before, is trying to give his disciples a framework for life in the kingdom of God. And, and yes, as a teacher, but also as a philosopher, although much of it is counterintuitive to what we may think, Jesus is setting up for his disciples what the kingdom of God would signify as the good life, the, the fulfilled life, even the real life of what happiness is. And, and so far, Jesus has touched on everything from anger and bitterness to sexuality and sexual desire how we treat our enemies, how we stay with our spouses, how we practice piety like prayer and fasting. And then now in, in this section of his sermon, Jesus makes a quick shift into perspective. So for the majority of the sermon, he's been railing at the desire and the motive of our heart. And from now in this shift up until the end in chapter seven, Jesus is going to look at the perspectives and the outlook of our hearts. He adjusts his focus, his sermon, in order to teach his disciples how to think about very real-life topics like money and possessions. Jesus wants to shift our perspective. And I want to connect it back with my opening illustration. I want to point out something that should be obvious, but is worth making clear. If Jesus is giving his Sermon on the Mount to his disciples in order to shape them into living lives that match up with his kingdom. And in that sermon here mentions money, that means that in Jesus' mind, 
Your money and what you have, what you want, does not get an exemption from your discipleship. If Jesus is trying to shape us into wholehearted, comprehensive disciples, and he mentions money in that process, we don't have the option to leave that out of our discipleship. But we so often do. Money and how we spend money is one of those last topics in the church that is courted off from discussion, right? Seen as a private matter. I, I've said this before, but I find it funny, I find it strange even, that Christians will listen to a sermon where a pastor will tell them what to do with their sexuality. That the Bible is allowed to speak to our sexual desire, but don't talk about our money. That's really silly. We can talk about our bedrooms, but not our bank accounts. That's strange. And, and friend, I, I want you to look at me here at the beginning and hear this. Everything that Jesus teaches here about money, he does so because it is good for you. It is good for you to hear this word from Jesus and for him to leave out the topic of money out of his teaching, out of his sermon, would be to leave you with a deficient discipleship. Jesus doesn't leave out money because he knows that to do so would be to sell us short on the whole life type of change that we need. Jesus gives us his word because we need it. And yet, like I said, so many of us have willingly rejected this piece of Jesus' teaching. We are intentionally short-circuiting the life of joy, peace, and fulfillment that a disciple should have because we have too tight of a grip on what we have or even on, on what we want. We have willfully, bring it back to the illustration, cut off this major muscle of our discipleship. Money is a major, major muscle in your walk of discipleship. And if you leave it out, you end up looking silly. You end up looking silly or maybe better shallow. It's silly or maybe better shallow to be concerned about how frequent our quiet times are or are not, and yet never have the awareness to see that our monthly eating out budget is greater than what we give. In terms of what the Bible speaks about our money and our discipleship, that is silly. It's, it's shallow to, to praise the depths of God's love in the sacrifice of what he loved most, but never notice how unwilling we are to sacrifice. So this is, a, this is a good word for us today. It's good for Jesus to orient us around money and how he thinks about money if we're gonna be his disciples. And so, so I wanna jump in and I want you to put your guard down. Deal? Can I get another verbal yes? Yes. Great. Didn't hear everyone, but it's fine. <laughs> Let your guard down because I, I really think that if you allow God's word to word to speak to you here, you're going to see some things that are wonderful about God and even what it means to be a disciple of Jesus. So let's, let's jump in, starting in verse 19. If you have your Bible, pull it up and, and read. Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth, where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven, where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. 
Now, the first way Jesus uh, addresses our money is by playing on our natural sense of risk management. Jesus knows this about us. What we have or, or, and what you love, you, you don't want to risk. Jesus knows this. But with that knowledge, he invites us to think a little differently about risk than we normally do. He, he speaks specifically to the human habit of storing up things in order for us to be okay or, or for us to flourish. And, and Jesus' burden here isn't necessarily with us storing up things. What he's concerned about is us storing up things alone, storing them only, where the, the, the location of where we store them. As Jesus shows, there are, are two places to store up what you love and what you want most, here on earth or here or up in heaven. And Jesus warns us against storing up things here on earth precisely because it is more risky than what we might initially understand. Jesus plays on our natural propensity to avoid risk with the things that we have and kind of calls that out and says, you do know those things are going to be destroyed. You do know how vulnerable those things actually are. What we store up here on earth is always open to risk. Seattle knows this. Who here has had their catalytic converter stolen? Is that two on the nose? I know of a couple. You're not raising your hand right now. It's always open to risk. And we know this, but I want to call your attention to it. Everything you own right now and every possession that brings you joy, one day someone's going to give away for free to get it off of their hands. Everything you love is the stuff of future garage sales and junkyards. Everything, everything you enjoy. So I, I think of this often when I'm, I'm driving my car. I, I've usually driven relatively older cars, and right now I have a 2004 Volvo XC70. I love it, but man, it has some problems. Uh, so to kind of catch you up on what it's like to drive that car, um, the, the dash shuts off pretty often um, when I close the door too hard or even when it's cold. So that's a problem, you know? I have no idea how fast I'm going. I have no idea how much gas I have. Um, it's all on faith. The window, the driver's side window does not go down. In order, to, in order to drive with my window down on the driver's side, I can't roll it down. I have to take the window out and put it in my passenger seat. That's a true story. If you want, I'll show you when we get, when we get done here. I've, I've learned just enough how to wedge it in there. And as I'm driving around that car that I really do like but has some problems, I often think about the person who first owned that car in 2004. You know, like in 2004, it has some things that were probably pretty, you know, I don't want to say like top of the line, but pretty nice. Seat heaters, turbocharged, winter mode. It had some things that were really awesome back then. And I just wonder, that original owner who first had that car, who was probably so excited about it, how they would feel and how shocked they would be to see how easily it falls apart now. And this is true of whatever you have. It really does offer a surge of joy when you first get it. And Jesus isn't commanding against that surge of joy, nor is he commanding us against having savings accounts or investing our money. What he is warning us about is to recalculate our risk management monitor. 
Would you rather have what will fade away? Would you rather hope in what's going to fade away and, and leave you with disappointment? Or would you rather have what cannot be taken? And now I know the answer that automatically comes up in the human heart. Well, if I can have it now, even if I won't have it then, I'd rather have it now. <laughs> but isn't that strange, though? Isn't it strange that we would rather have now, we would rather hope in what we can have now, even though we know from experience that we will eventually lose it? It's, it's strange and even, in fact, foolish Wisdom tells us to bank on the permanent. As the missionary Jim Elliott once said, he is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain that which he cannot lose. That is the way of wisdom. The path of wisdom leads us to long for the eternal and invest our hope there. But Jesus' warning is deeper than just the problem of risk. He warns us, Precisely because, where, where he ends it in verse 21, where our treasure is, what we are hoping for is always where our heart will be also. What we value most, what we want most, what we love the most will govern our entire lives. What we love and what we want, it, it tugs at our emotions and it drives our ambitions. Whatever that thing is, it, it fills the agendas that we have. It fills the time that we plan and we daydream and even the effort to achieve what we want. In other words, what Jesus says here is that our whole lives drift toward what we hold as our treasure, our entire life. Whatever that center is for you, whether you're cognizant of it or not, your whole life is drifting that way. Let, let, let me put it this way. So when I was a kid, I was really into riding bikes, right? That was kind of the thing to do back then. Uh, I grew up in what I think was the glory days where basically the only rule for my parents is be home by when the street lights come on, right? Right? Okay, yeah. Come on, guys, let's go. And, and, and so I remember growing up uh, for a time we were in Georgia and this is when I first learned how to ride a bike. And I would uh, go riding on a bike with my older brother and we'd go through these woods in the back, uh, in the, behind our house. And, and I remember my brother always getting so upset at me while we were riding bikes together because I was just learning and we were driving or we were riding through these thin little trails in the woods. And because I'm a younger brother and want my older brother's affirmation, I'm sitting there riding the bike and the whole time I'm trying to talk to him, you know? And I'm looking at him, talking to him. And what happens when you look at someone who's next to you riding a bike? Can you guess? Yes, you drift. Wherever I'm looking as I'm riding that bike, I'm slowly drifting into my brother. So I'd have to look back and then focus back on the trail. It's a lot like that. Wherever you focus your attention, your whole life will drift over. Where we place our treasure, where we locate what we want most is where our lives will inevitably drift. Jesus calls us to have our treasure located within the heavens, located there so that our deepest longings, the deepest affections of our hearts and the energy of our pursuits can be directed toward God and his kingdom that will last. And so this means that for the Christian, 
We are called to think of our money and treat our money with what you might call one foot raised. What do I mean by that? What I mean is you always, especially with money, you have to have one foot on the ground, right? You can't just be a dummy. Read Proverbs. You've got to steward what you have well, but you also have to have one foot off the ground to always remember that your home is not in what you have. You can have one foot on the ground taking care of what you have and being generous with what God calls you into, but always have a foot raised knowing that this is not your home. This is not your permanent place of residence. If you do that, if you pay attention to that, the treasure of your heart can slowly shift away from the things of the earth and towards heaven. Let me give you a a very quick application on how to do this. It's gonna sound strange, but it works for me, okay? To live with one foot raised. Here's what I want you to do with your Sunday afternoon. I want you to go home and plan your own funeral. I mean that. Right before, you know, the St. Peter's game, plan your funeral. Think about your own death. So in, in one of my journals, I have my entire funeral planned out. The only thing that's missing is the date. So I don't know that. But it's so helpful for me to remember, for me to picture that day and think, what will I want my life to have meant? When my my kids get up there, and hopefully it's a long time from now, and they're able to recount the life of their dad, what will be the most natural thing for them to point to? Will it be that my treasure and my hope was in what I had or in even what I was able to do? Or will they know that my life was lived of one of love, set on the kingdom of God? When we, when we think of our own fragility, when we think of the day that people will reflect on your life, we can get motivated to relinquish some of the hold that we have on the things here of earth. Go home and plan your funeral that will redirect the way that your heart treasures things. And if we don't redirect our treasure away from money or away from things of the world, then our whole world will be colored by the destruction that comes with financial obsession. Jesus speaks of this destruction in terms of the darkness in the eye, right? Verses 22 through 23. Now in Jesus's day, many people believed in something called extra mission when it came to how human sight works. So extra mission was the belief that the eye was the lamp of the body that actually reflected and projected everything we see. That everything you see is actually coming as a reflection of what's inside of the eye. And Jesus here, though being the creator of the eye and understanding exactly how it works, stoops down to their level in order to give a culturally relevant illustration. And it's an illustration that brings the conversation back to what is inside of you, right? What is in your heart? His illustration is this. If your heart has its treasure fixated on money, there is deep darkness within you that will color everything you see in life. If money is your fixation, If money is your devotion and you make all of life about money, that is a dark life, is what Jesus says. That if that inside of you there's nothing more than just financial obsession, 
thinking about what you have or could have. Jesus identifies that as a dark heart that brings real destruction, that colors all of life with its darkness. And we have illustrations of this destruction, right? We have examples in our own world, certainly, but also in the biblical narrative. As I was preparing the sermon and thinking about this moment, I couldn't help but wonder if Jesus gave some strong eye-to-eye contact with Judas in this moment. Maybe a strong side-eye knowing what would come for him. Because in Judas, we see a strong warning of just how strong this darkness is when life is all about money. I mean, really reflect on the fact that Judas was able to walk with Jesus for years. Jesus, so I've been in Seattle for almost two years. Judas knew Jesus longer than I've known you. Judas was able to walk with Jesus, see Jesus perform miracles, witness him raise people from the dead and walk on water and give crowds food from basically nothing. And not only that, was he a witness to the miracles, he was privy to the inner circle of Jesus. He was allowed among the 12 to see face to face the life of Jesus, all of which he never really saw because he was able to exchange the life of Jesus for 30 pieces of silver because of the darkness of his eye, because of the darkness of his heart, his perspective, unable to see the beauty and worth of the person right in front of him. He could only see a financial opportunity. And what a darkness that is. It's a a darkness that eventually led him to hang himself on a tree. Financial obsession, when money is everything, everything and everyone becomes a means to an end or an obstacle in the way. And what a darkness that is. Now, all of this comes down to a demanding choice. This is where Jesus lands his section of this sermon. No one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. So Jesus concludes his warnings around money by pressing the conviction that he just created. He doesn't just want to warn you, he wants to demand a decision from you. It's so easy for us to move on from warnings, right? especially the, the warnings around money from the Bible. We, we often hear them, we acknowledge them, and then move on. These warnings around money in the Bible are like the Surgeon General notice on the side of a pack of cigarettes. Does that stop anyone? No. We just think, well, that's for someone else. I know of the danger, I acknowledge the danger, but I'll deal with that one day. It's pushed to another day. Jesus won't allow that procrastination. He presses the decision on us. You can either, right now, make your life about money, or you can make your life about God. There is no switching between the two. There is no exchange of allegiance that you can go back and forth on. Your allegiance will have to be given to one side or the other. The Apostle James talks about this and this decision of allegiance. Listen to this from from James 4. You adulterous people, 
Good morning, James. Do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Or do you suppose that it is to no purpose that the scripture says he yearns jealously over the spirit that he has made to dwell in us? Now, that's a, that's a strong word for those of us who are, are flirting around with how the world thinks and how the world lives. But the same dynamic exists when it comes to our money. There is no middle ground. Heart stop. There is no middle ground. There is no compromise. Either money will absorb the way you think, will conquer everything you plan for, will take up where you spend your time and where you seek your joy, or God will. Those are the options. And you see why James points out for why this is so important, right? Did you see it there? Did you hear it there at the end? God is jealous for you. God is jealous for your devotion. I've said said this to you before. God refuses to be your side piece. God refuses to be your little fling on the side. God is not a spiritual sprinkle on the otherwise worldly life. Rather, he yearns jealously for all of you. He wants your whole heart. God is jealous for you. And that that might sound strange to some of you or or maybe even off-putting. Why is God so obsessed with having all of me? What's his problem? C.S. Lewis thought of that a lot when he was an atheist. He talks about how now he would hear the, the call in the Bible to praise God, and he would always have the picture of a, what he called a weak and insecure older woman who was always looking for the affirmations of others. That was Lewis's assessment of who God is. Is that true? Is that why God is jealous for you? It's because he's weak. He's insecure. Or is he jealous because he knows exactly who he is? It knows exactly who you are. God is jealous for all of our devotion as an act of love. Because he knows that his heart is our home. He invites all of us to experience all of his heart. God is jealous for our devotion to experience his great love in his heart. But that experience... That home in the heart of God cannot be had if our devotion lies more with money than it does with him. Not only because you're serving money instead of God, but also hear this. When you serve money, you subjugate God. When you serve money, you subjugate God. You see, when you serve God, money is subjugated. Money becomes a wonderful gift to use in your service to God. But when you serve money as the supreme goal of your life, God is subjugated and actually in your mind gets the place, gets placed into the role of serving your financial ends. The service of one means the subjugation of the other. And now it might, it might sound strange to, to say to you that to serve money is to subjugate God. Many of us might have a picture in our head of the television prosperity gospel preachers who are demanding people give as their jet warms up on the tarmac. Many of us might think of that, and it's horrific. But not many of us would see the caution that we should have in our own heart. 
I would caution you against having such a narrow picture. Yes, the prosperity gospel preachers who use God's name to make themselves filthy rich are certainly those who serve money instead of God. They have sought to subjugate God for their own financial ends, but they are not the only ones who are guilty, friends. Maybe more heinously, maybe more obviously, but they are not alone. Here's some other, maybe more subtle signs that we serve money and subjugate God. I've already said this, but your monthly eating out budget is greater than what you give. You pray a lot about your financial anxiety, your personal financial anxiety, but rarely pray about your personal character. When you're living a relatively obedient lifestyle, you have an instinct that tells you that for some reason you feel you are more deserving of financial blessing. God owes you something. You find in yourself yourself a, a direct correlation between your financial state and how much you trust, obey, or want God. But for the Christian, we don't find God useful for our financial ends. As, as Tim Keller said once, religious people find God use, religious people find God useful. Christians find God beautiful. That's the difference. That's the distinction. We must find God beautiful, more attractive than even what money can land us. And so in landing the plane, let's, let's recalibrate just briefly on what makes God so beautiful. And therefore, what can, what can budge our devotion from money over to God? And it centers on Jesus Christ. I don't know if we'll ever know, friends, the riches Jesus Christ gave up. I don't know if we'll ever be able to comprehend how much wealth Jesus willingly laid aside in order to take on flesh. To be the eternal son of God who is existing with the Father and the Spirit in this dance of reciprocal, unending love receiving the praises of everything that is, to step aside from that and put on flesh what he, what, what he walked away from, what he gave up, the poverty he himself took on his own person in order to save us. And when we see that, when we see the generosity of Jesus' heart to leave everything he had Everything that, as Paul says in Philippians, he rightfully could have grasped onto to leave that for you. You see, because Jesus, he's got a treasure and his whole life drifted toward him. And that treasure was you. That treasure in his heart that drifted his whole life toward the cross was his love for you. That's the beauty of God that wins us away from money. When we see the grace and mercy of Jesus, the beauty of it, his rich mercy, that can win us over. That can give us a display of the beauty of Christ, where we can say with Paul again in Philippians that everything else I count as rubbish. I count it as nothing in comparison to knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. If you can say that, with your heart. That little hold money has on you, 
will slowly be loosened up. We can subjugate money into the proper place that it is to serve the, men, serve the ends of who God is, to love him, to trust him. And so friends, certainly feel the, the conviction where money still has a tight grip on your heart, but don't try to fix yourself in that moment. Look to Jesus Christ. Look to his grace and mercy that will slowly loosen that hold. As the old hymn says, turn your eyes upon Jesus. Look full in his wonderful face and the things of earth will grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and his grace. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for the grace that comes after us, even even in the traps we don't know we find ourselves in. Many of us, myself included, want money too much. We love what it can give. We love the assurance or the pleasure that it can give. Father, I'm asking that your grace would come after us in that place. That we would sense and see the beauty of Jesus Christ. That the reason he calls us to locate our treasure within the heavens is because that's where he is. That's where our home is. That's where our joy is. It's an act of love for Jesus to call our attention away from the things of this world and to trust in you, God. And so, Father, would you forgive us of the ways that we've held on so tightly? And would you make us into fully formed disciples? This message that Jesus has is not about giving. It's about discipleship. And, Lord, we want to be faithful disciples that actually follow you in real life, faithfully even. And with your grace and the work of your spirit, do that in us. Help us not be like the world that, that simply sees what it can have and only hopes there. Would you give us the grace of an expanded perspective of who you are and your worth and beauty. We trust you for that work and, and wait for you now. In Jesus' name, amen. This teaching was recorded as part of our current sermon series at Icon Church. During our weekly gatherings, we move from the teaching to a time of response. While we recognize it may be hard to capture that as you listen online, we encourage you to take a moment to reflect on and respond to what the Spirit might be telling you in response to what you've heard. For more resources and to find out how you can join with us on gathering on Sundays, visit iconchurch.org. And as we say each week, Christ is all, and we are his.